This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. My name is Germ. This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. Man, I hope I'm going to say this correctly. Tom Luongo. Yes, you got it right. Awesome. Thank you for joining me in the trenches, Tom Luongo. It's, what's, it's a very interesting surname. Oh, no, it's Italian. It's actually a really quite common Italian name. Beyond oh. It actually is, yeah. Okay. It's but very you don't, Italian. But you don't have that Sylvester Stallone thing going. No, no, no. <laughs> I have more the New York... I have more the... the, the New York Italian Jew thing that's it's, it's like all very similar if you've been to, if you've been in you know New York we we always said you know it's like Italian Jew it's not really not that much different we just kind of kvetch the same way it's it, there's a there's a large crossover there so what's not an Italian in, not, Jew it's not really this it's not it's just there's a there's a it's more New York than it is than anything else right um <laughs> that that we all have the same kind of mannerisms so you know yeah. I got a big nose you know it's like there's a like it's just the thing I'm, I'm not I'm completely <laughs> Italian but it's like a mixture it's all southern Italian stuff so it's actually more Greek than it is um right because there's a lot of you know there's a lot of Greek crossover in southern Italy so and then you know sure there's some Moorish blood in there somewhere and you know all the rest of it so you know we all talk about being like pure bloods or whatever but we've all been evaded like you know 18 ways from Sunday from everybody <laughs> else so you know you were giving so. me a hard time a moment ago because uh, I'm drinking uh, yeah, Jack Daniels not, no 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 not completely I'm just saying <laughs> like, you asked and you say are well, you drinking Jack Daniels I'm like but the only thing from Jack Daniels I ever actually liked I, I knew that like rise had become the thing mm. when Jack Daniels put out a rye and actually it wasn't bad right like you know, ten years ago, you couldn't find a rye, a top shelf rye to, you know, to, to you know, you, you, if you if you tried, right, you had to go on a on a tour. Now ryes are everywhere. It's like it's, it's like like everything in whiskey and in guns and everything. Everything's mm -hmm. cyclic. It's all like fashion, you know. Like bell bottoms are in, then they're out. Big bore, you know, big bore rounds are in, then everybody wants to go small round, high velocity, and in, in guns and hunting. And same thing in, in in whiskey. You know, we go from single malts to ryes, back to bourbons. Yeah, and, you know, it's just. But, but Jack Daniels, they have mm -hmm. a lot of fake marketing. They call themselves the Tennessee whiskey, but there's no such thing. Right. 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 <laughs> so, yeah, well, they, they're not allowed to call themselves bourbon, right? Because bourbon is very specific to Kentucky, right? So, you know, ah, it's, like, it's like that port sherry thing and champagne yeah. and sparkling wine, I think. Well, it's the same thing with, with, with Scotch whiskey and whiskey with an E or without yes. an E. I don't remember which one's which, right? I can and it's all this, 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 it's all this nonsense. I know we just, we're, we're, we're distilling uh, whiskey <laughs> down here in Florida now and it's good and I'm good. There's a, there's a, uh, a good distillery over in St. Augustine. They make a fine bourbon or whatever you want to call it. Um, I drink that as much as they drink anything else anymore. So there you go. For, the, for those who haven't come across um you and mm -hmm. your work what what is your background well um going back to uh professionally i started as a chemist uh kind of like dave column is you know head of uh organic chemistry over at cornell university i'm not, nothing nearly as illustrious as that. i just i worked as a, a bench chemist and uh, a research chemist for about 25 years um you know i did you know i, I was on a path to kind of high level, high energy physics and, you know, and whatnot 
as an undergraduate and I just decided I didn't want to go to graduate school. And so I just went and got a job in the industry and just did the thing. And that ended around, you know, uh, 2011 or so. And, you know, but in between, I kind of discovered the fact that the reason I hated politics was because I was a libertarian or some version, individualist, sovereignist, whatever you want to call it. Back then, being a libertarian was actually kind of cool. Today, it's like God knows what you know what it actually means, and mostly it means a bunch of, of uh, left hards who LARP as libertarians, uh, not actually wanting to admit the fact that you know open borders and a welfare state don't work. But that's a different topic for a different day. So, I mean, I got completely um, subsumed into that once I realized that the left-right divide the Democrats versus Republicans was all nonsense. I finally, I saw, I found something that actually made sense politically, economically and everything else fell down the Austrian economics hole in it. And it became my like hobby, like between games theory and libertarianism, like it became every, my, all of my non professional waking hours became that. And even while I was at work, I would listen to early podcasts all day long. And so eventually I just became, you know, completely obsessed with it. And uh, when my career as a chemist, I hit the skids in the early in my, in my early 40s, but well, about 10, 11 years ago now, I didn't have enough education to run a laboratory. Uh, I had too much experience to be a, to be just some guy, right? To be a hired gun, and so I couldn't get a job. And so I had to do something else. I always wanted to be a writer. I always wanted to do something in this field. And I wound up falling in with a guy in, uh, over in Vietnam. I wound up ghost, ghost writing his book for him and a variety of other things. And um, so I was working with a guy over in Vietnam and uh, uh, over Skype. Literally, we had a we were trying to run a business over Skype, doing a lot of ghost writing for him and, and whatnot. And I learned a lot about you know markets and how to read a balance sheet and you know how to do uh, and how to do research and write research notes and whatnot. And then eventually, you know, that just it became just obvious that there was no path for me. So I started writing under my own name on Seeking Alpha. And with six months, I got picked up by Newsmax to write uh, Goldstock Advisor, which we rebranded Resident Wealth. I was there with, for them for four years. That job ended. I went, you know, I went uh, independent with Gold, Ghosts and Guns, basically re rebuilding that idea. Um, and uh, here I am. And then I got picked back up by them in 2019. And I write not only my own newsletter, but Ultimate Wealth Report for, for Newsmax. So... Gold, goats, and guns. But I mm -hmm. I was a bit disappointed. I was expecting it to be gold, goats, guns, and girls for that extra. You can add games and <laughs> and chicks, and you can add whatever other G words you want. It's not government, you know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. No, seriously, I'm I'm all good with it. Like we, you know, girl. I FYI, um, as a writer. Um, lists shall be three long because that if they're it's like the Monty Python skit the, then they, the the number of the count shall be three five is right out four is wrong you know <laughs> yada 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 um, and no it really is does work that way that that lists that are three long have a great rhythm to them and I use it you'll see it in my writing all the time I, it's like oh by the way it's the it's the cheat code that why if you like my writing it's why it's so effective is because I know how to I know how to do the, the timing thing, and it's really about the, the list. It's about the rule of three, so gold, goats, and guns. If it was gold, goats, guns, and girls, it wouldn't work as well. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and I, I and was going to I, I was going to – I mean, it, it was between gold, goats, and guns and stock, shocks, and rocks because uh, I was almost – that was the other one I was going to – that was the other one I was playing with uh, at the time. So um, gold, goats, and guns won out uh, because I'm nothing if not you know, uh, a little off-kilter. Right. So each of those three things, though, have significance mm -hmm. in 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 your own worldview. Yes, absolutely. Um, 
from a portfolio strategy perspective and for the newsletter and the way I've, I've, I've structured the newsletter, it's around the three themes, gold, goats, and guns. Um, it's really about that whole concept of being your own central bank, going back to like stuff that Jim Sinclair used to write about on uh, JS Mindset, like be your own central bank in this world. So have your stash of savings. And then from there, once you're comfortable with that, then you can build an investment portfolio after you have enough tangible assets saved for the rainy day. And then you can start in investing into the future. And it's very Austrian in the way you think about it, Austrian economics, which is that you have to save first before you can invest, right? You have to save you have to have security before you can start thinking about the longer term. Like high time preference behavior gets, you know, becomes low time preference behavior the more savings you have, mm. right? So, um, so from my perspective, gold is savings. Uh, goats is industry. Like I go from I've got a house now and I've got shelter over my roof and I've got a store of food for the winter. Now what do I do? Well, hey, let's go. Let's get into animal husbandry as a metaphor for you know, for building a business. Um, and then guns is once you have those two things, you have savings and you have goats, well, then you need guns in order to protect it all. So from a portfolio's perspective, it's income or high yield. And then um, so mostly income funds and high yield stuff in order to figure out, in order to way to create a uh, cash flow. Right. right. Um, and then not necessarily high risk, but just, you know, good high, high cash flow uh, investments. And then, that still hit the themes about where you think the the market's going to go, and then the the goats portfolio would be all the the kind of big caps and you know, you know just kind of standard companies in there. You know, companies like Gazprom and and, and others. You put big companies in there, Shell, right? Um, and then in the goat and then the guns portfolio is basically your hedges and your uh, your defensive positions. So. Like and for there, like for example, I have in there like you know a short against the euro, Bitcoin is a, a hedge against you know the the collapse of fiat currencies that kind of thing is bitcoin real money absolutely without a doubt um as a matter of fact i i wrote the first probably the first publicly available article about bitcoin in july of 2010. so bitcoin was still in beta at that point and i found it through the daily the daily paul the website that used to uh, cover Ron Paul on a daily basis. And I found it in the, in the gutter. I was like, Oh, that's kind of cool. Cause I was like obsessed with mon with, with monetary theory at this point in my life. And I read the white paper and went over to the Bitcoin forums, read the white paper and went, wow, cool. Cause I was actually like trying to des design a, a currency for, I had some, I had some pretensions about writing a, a foundation like, um, story about a civilization that thought it had a in uh, an unhackable currency, an uncounterfeitable currency. And I was going to write like the foundation from an Austrian economics perspective. And um, so I was trying to come up with a money that that could be one unhackable and then eventually get hacked. And I like, read the Bitcoin white paper and I went, wow, they did it. <laughs> and I was like, oh, cool, they did it. Like, that's what I wanted. But I didn't I was going down a completely different rabbit hole you know, in my thinking on this. And when I, once I understood the cryptography, I was like, oh, this is, this is brilliant. And so I wound up on the Bitcoin forums very early on. And I remember, um, the early, early discussions about whether it was real money or not. And I just kind of looked at it and I went, satisfies Mises's regression theorem to me. Um, it's not hard. And the early Austrians, they thought it was all, you know, early, the early reaction from the Lou Rockwell crowd was that it was complete nonsense. And, uh, it was just another Ponzi scheme. And I said, uh, no, you're wrong. And um, eventually I had a bunch of bunch of them 
you know, asked me behind the scenes in private email about this. And I just went through the steps of what I thought about why it satisfies Mises' regression theorem. And they went, you're right. I, I'm like, I know I'm right. <laughs> Good. You guys taught me well. Um, you know, it's just the way it is. And but it was it was hard for them to initially wrap their, their brains around it. But what it is makes it hard money? Sure. But what makes it hard money? Um, because it, if you'll excuse my ignorance, it's just sure. digital. It's just numbers. It like, is, but like it's, it, it, but it's not, it's not counterfeitable. See the problem fundamentally what we have, we have the fundamental problem with like the, 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 uh, the fractional reserve system is that we have multiple claims of property to the same monetary units, like the fractional fractional reserve system. One, you have the ability to print money whenever the hell you want, right? Then you, you compound that problem by saying, okay, well, you know, we only demand 10% of actual cash at any one time, so we can create 10 times the number of monetary units that we actually have in reserves. It's the fractional reserve system. What that actually means is that there's 10 claims against $1, right? There's claims for $10 against the $1 that's sitting on the bank's balance sheet, on the bank's reserves. Um, that means that nobody has any property rights. Now, in Bitcoin, you own the keys, you own the property. You're, you know, no keys, no coins, right? Your keys, your coins. Um, and that's why, and, and as long as SHA-256, which is the encryption algorithm for Bitcoin, is not hackable, right? Nobody has the back door to it. And uh, then... Those are your coins. You're the only, as long as you don't give anybody the private key. And moreover, those coins can't be counterfeited. Not, and you, yeah, you can fork the chain. Like Peter Schiff brings this up all the time. Oh, they just fork the chain. There's more Bitcoins out there. Yeah, but nobody cares about those. They don't carry the same weight. They're not real Bitcoins. Like the market's not stupid. It's an imposter. It's like, it's the difference between a real craftsman wrench and going to Harbor Freight, at least 10 years ago. Harbor Freight tools are actually far, far more, uh, far better than they used to be. We, we, we here in America call, you know, we call Harbor Freight Chinese tool store, right? And we mean that derogatorily compared to buying, say, SK wrenches or something like that, right? SK or, or, or craftsman wrenches. And told craftsman wrenches even started getting, you know, made from the same place that the Harbor Freight wrenches were. Then, like, at the end of the day, you know, it's, it's all the same thing. But... You know, one's an imposter and one isn't, right? One's a real bull of a watch and one's a Bolova watch that you buy off of the street corner in, you know, Manhattan from a guy, you know, in, out of the back of a suitcase in Manhattan. The market understands the difference between the two. And, um, you know, the Bitcoin's blockchain every day, every every 10 minutes when another block has um, been validated and that, and that block's been validated and the, and the blockchain not hacked, well... It's just adding security. It's just adding confidence in the blockchain every day. Every time it goes through a you know, denial of service attack. And I was there when you know, some guy looked at Bitcoin and said, yeah, okay, this is really dumb. I'm going to break this thing. I'm going to 51% attack Bitcoin. This happened very early on. And he got his ass kicked. No, you know, all pun, you know, no pardon my French, but he, he got his ass kicked. He spent a bunch of money and he, he lost. He put all of his computing power against it and he lost. And he was like some dude that was running a server farm and you know, that was, you know, IT guy. And so he took all of the server processing power that was spare in the place that he worked and stole it to try and beat Bitcoin and Bitcoin beat him. And this is when, you know, the difficulty number, this is when you can mine Bitcoin on an Intel CPU, which I did. <laughs> okay. Back, back it was in, in those day. days. Yeah, no, it was in those days where, you know, the client was the 0.36 beta. Okay. 
So when there were, you know, when we couldn't, when Bitcoin couldn't get a Wikipedia page because it wasn't, re, it wasn't anything tangible or real. Okay, I was there for that. <laughs> I remember Wikipedia rejecting the, you know, the Bitcoin, the the, the Bitcoin article that they, the, the Bitcoin entry that they tried to put together. And it was that, when, that was that early on. So when you when you talk about Bitcoin, though, you are referring to the cryptocurrency as a whole not necessarily bitcoin itself i'm talking yeah i mean what i mean when i okay this is a couple of things like mm. when i get on a hold on for a second um i'm sorry you're gonna have to say no i need to put that i should have put that on silent i'm very sorry um i don't know who's calling me from detroit michigan but whoever it is i'm sorry i'm not talking to you right now um so I never get phone calls. I guess it's really crazy. Um, I, I go on Bitcoin podcasts all the time. I've been on Mark Moss's show. I've been on with uh, Ansel Lidner over at FedWatch and Bitcoin Magazine and whatnot. And they're all Bitcoin, what they call Bitcoin maximalists. And I'm not a Bitcoin maxi. Um, but I do love proof of work and I do love Bitcoin, right? But I just don't believe that. I, I'm, I'm enough of a, of, a, of a free market economist and enough of a, an adherent to the law of diminishing marginal utility that I know that no asset is the end all and be all of any technology, period. Right. I don't give a damn, I just don't care. So until I see Bitcoin beat out all the other quote unquote shit coins, and I mean the proof of work hard currencies, the ones that you know are like Bitcoin, right? Litecoin or Monero or Pirate Chain or whatever, those things, that's what I'm talking about. Until I see Bitcoin beat them in the absence of after it has broken all the central banks, if that happens, and it then outcompetes all of them, and it's actually, you know, competing on the technological, you know, uh, advantages or disadvantages of its blockchain. Okay. If it wins, it wins. And I'm happy to be wrong. I'm happy to, you know, put, okay, yeah, you were right 20 years ago. Like, I care. Like, I'll be dead by then. Like, what do I care? You know, I mean, what I want, when, when I make that argument, I'm, I'm talking about, I talk yeah. about Bitcoin as metaphor, right? Yeah. That, the concept of Bitcoin as the cryptocurrency, as the proof of work blockchain, which is a pretty dumb technology, but it's actually a really good technology for its stated purpose, which is to give people an antipode to central bank fiat currency, which is garbage and is literally, you know, a mechanism for stealing your time and therefore your wealth and your potential wealth, because that's the only thing we can do in our lives is turn our time into, you know, security. And, and CBDC is also they're also very dangerous. Oh, they're they're, they're ten times more dangerous than what we currently have, because they're programmable. Mm. Okay, now if you want to, you know, kick somebody out of the monetary system, you got to go to individual actors. You got to go to individual companies. You got to go to Visa, and the and Bank of America, and this one, and that one, and everybody else, and Stripe, and everybody, and, and try and kick somebody, and try and kick you know Alex Jones out of the. Um, out of the monetary system. It's a lot of work. You got to coordinate actions across a lot of people. With central bank digital currency, they just go, nope, sorry, your credit, your, your score is not high enough. You're too fat. Your, your blood pressure is too high. You don't get to go, you don't get to order a pizza. Done. We don't yeah, like that's you. Why they, you. That's why they call it. You, you said mean things about, you said mean things about, about mm. Jews on, 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 on Twitter. You don't get to have, you know, you don't get to have a car loan. Like you don't get to have a job. Like it's, we, and we already have those things. They're called HR departments and we need to get rid of them. So, um, I, the last thing I want to do is turn, you know, my currency into the HR departments of, you know, the last 25 years. Uh, that's just dumb. Uh, that's, that's, ty that's tyrannical in a way that even Orwell was like, that's impressive. Um, <laughs>
Wait, so when you talk about gold, goats, and guns, the gold part includes Bitcoin. Yeah, it does in many ways. I, I see Bitcoin uh, the same way that I see gold and the same way I see I, I see it as a safe haven. Ultimately, it's a safe haven asset. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and when I think about it in terms of, you know, what its potential role is to protect people's um, wealth and purchasing power over the course of a uh, over the course of a generation of monetary uh, trouble that we're at, we're going to we're just entering it now. Like this has been going on since 2008 you know, the breakdown of the monetary system, you know, the monetary system broke in 2008. We've just been bandaging it together and keeping it alive uh, for the last 14 years. And, and we're going to have another 10 years of this. Um, Don't you think it goes back further? What's that? Don't you think it goes back further than 2008? Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, the, the, the monetary system has been broken since we went off the international gold standard, but just the dollar reserve standard ended in 2008. Um, I'm I've been, the way I've been looking at the world since then is that um, we, we, we ended the dollar reserve standard in 2008, and then we had the coordinated central bank standard of 2008 through 2021. And the Federal Reserve cut off the coordinated um, uh, central bank standard on June 16, 2021, when they re- raised the reverse repo rate by five basis points and drained the world to $2 trillion worth of, worth of offshore dollars. Change, changing, you know, everything. Uh, and then they kept doubling down on it and the political backlash within um, the elite circles, which is what I've been chronicling for the last year. And uh, in my mind is I think I'm right about. And every day I kind of get more and more um, confirmation that I'm right about this. And, you know, I've been walking. I've been I've been I've been climbing a wall of worry on this thesis for over a year now. You know what I mean? Um, and. Uh, and this sometimes being like the lone voice in the wilderness on this. But if you listen very carefully to people who are close to the Fed, um, Daniel DiMartino Booth and others, you can hear the you can hear it that I think I'm right, that this is what's going on. That the Powell and the New York banks have declared independence from um, what's going on over in Europe and what's going on over in China. And, you know, they, they're like, no, we're not doing this. Um, we're not going to end commercial banking. We're not going to end the vestiges of capitalism and turn it into a bunch of, you know, Technokami, you know, schna run by a bunch of, you know, German Marxist Malthusians. We're just not doing it. You know, who want to kill 8 billion people? Like, no. How about no? Or 7 billion people? Like, no. Yeah. How about, yeah, how about no? So, um, you know, I mean, like, we're sick, you know, as my, my, my friend Tommy Kerrigan likes to put it in Tommy's podcast, you know, you know, they may be, you know, sniffing cocaine over Ukrainian hookers' vagina, but, you know, the guys over in, they're looking at the guys over in, over in Germany, going, yeah, no, but you guys are ill. Like, listen, you know, that's the, you, those you Ukrainian are girls are quite hot, though. Yeah, they are. <laughs> I have a soft spot. I, I don't tell my wife. I have a well, she already knows. I have a real soft spot for Eastern European, uh, Eastern European women. So, like Melania yes. Trump. Wow. Yeah, let's just let's just put a disclaimer for our wives. Okay, yes, mm. we love our wives. Absolutely. My, 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 my wife is one of the most amazing women. No, I'm not, I'm not just saying this. I say this shit all the time, even when I'm not now, you know, getting caught that, you know, letting everybody know that I, I prefer, you know, I prefer Eastern European porn to, you know, everything else. Um, <laughs> she already knows this by, you know, my wife is an amazing woman. And, uh, and actually there is no me in the way you see me today without her. She's a, she's like put the best part of my research. Team, and in many ways, I mean, she really is. I don't, I don't even like. She knows this. I'm not, I'm not trying to suck up to her in public. She's not gonna watch this. She doesn't give a shit. 
Um, she, she, she's heard every one of these rants a thousand times. She doesn't want to hear it a thousand and one times. You know, so don't worry about it. Guys. I'm not, uh, I'm not, uh, you know, trying to cover my tracks here or anything like I'm trying to work care. out if, 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 uh, what you just said now is a good segue into that, uh, <laughs> in, <laughs> into the, into the game, the chess game metaphor that oh, you used recently, um, with sure. the geopolitics and how it's how it's playing into <laughs> into the central bank <laughs> sure uh and the central banks and you know and uh you know sniffing cocaine off a ukrainian hooker's pussy right okay so um yeah it actually is part of the game um so um and the game really i, I go back and forth in this i was i i watched i actually got a chance to watch the speech because it was the first public speech i've done in quite a long time and you know the one thing i've you know, I'm sitting here after six years of learning how to speak into a microphone and keep my head basically still and actually do this well, right? I then go into the Ron Paul, I go and speak publicly and I'm like, oh, by the way, the microphone's there and I'm like all over the place. So apologies to everybody that you can't actually hear. You have to like crank the, the, the audio all the way up. And my, volume, like the speech. my volume wasn't 100%. Oh yeah, mine too. Like I can <laughs> barely hear. And I still have to crank everything. I still have to crank you know, everything up. So, um, but I, my voice carries locally right but i didn't forgot about the the fact that the, they had the mic on unidirectional and not uh not cardioid not uh not not omnidirectional right so um i go back and forth on this because a few months ago i actually wrote an article saying that geopolitics isn't mo isn't even modeled by chess or go or anything else it's actually modeled by calvin ball from calvin and Hobbes. it's just a 10 year old boy running around making up making up the rules as he goes um, and I go back and forth on this as to whether it's a seven player game of go or it's Calvin ball. And I think it's a mixture of, <laughs> be honest with you, I think it's a mixture of both. I think people would prefer it to actually be a seven player game of go. Cause at least there's some, some freaking rules, but you know, the way, um, the way the, the, the U S neoconservatives and, and you, and the British neoconservatives and the European Malthusians I talked about earlier, I, you know, centered around uh, the the World Economic Forum, Klaus Schwab, and those guys. Uh, they just believe that they, you know, the rules are whatever we make them, and the rules are for you to follow, not for us, because you know we're, we're just, you know, we do have white privilege. Oh, by the way, and it's it's real, right? But it's our privilege. Yeah. So that's, you know, and if you do, if you think of it in those terms, it's pretty obvious that the the rest of the world. Is tired of this. Right? The global South is really tired of it. The Russians are tired of it. They're, they're openly tired of it. And they're openly like, oh, by the way, we're going to beat you. We don't know how we're going to do it, but we're going to do it. We don't care. We're Russian. We'll figure it out. If we have to throw every freaking last one of us into the meat grinder of Ukraine to bleed you people white, we will. Because that's what we did in World War II. We threw 27 million people at the problem that you created called Adolf Hitler. To throw at us and we didn't care we stopped you anyway um putin has them riled up and the russians riled up in a way that they haven't been i don't think since world war ii you know uh and now they uh, i think the russian people really do believe that it's a righteous cause and and they get it that it's not just the united states that they're fighting they're fighting europe as well and they get it and the Chinese are clearly ticked off, as uh, you know, and they understand. The Indians are clearly ticked off. Um, Pakistan is Pakistan, Iran, Arabia, the South America. They're all just like, you know, we're, we're done. Like all yeah, the, the, the economic leaders have 
bricks uh, as oh, well. Not just the bricks, yeah. But it's it's even bigger than the bricks. It's 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 just the whole what I guess some somebody termed the global south. I, you know, I heard of in Pepe Escobar first, but um, that that group of people, that group of countries, is clear. Like you know, who's sanctioned the Russians and who hasn't? That's your division line in the world at this point, and you know they're they're done, and they're all they have to do is stand tall and go. You know what? We're not. We're gonna we're gonna continue to pump oil, and we're gonna continue to to uh, run the world on hydrocarbons, our world on hydrocarbons, and you can go scratch. We don't care what you do, and you and your days of financial colonialization through hyper financialization and hyper weaponization of financial markets is over. Where it's done. That era that started with the bank with the Bank of England in 1694, it's over. We're done with it. We're gonna retie the world's economy to gold at some point when it suits our purpose and when it does maximal damage to you people. And you can either, you know, you can get on board or you can go scratch. And this is part of the reason why I really do believe that the Federal Reserve is like they don't have the the Fed works for the New York banks. The New York banks do not want to turn everything over. To, you know, the, they've worked very hard to get themselves, you know, um, separated from the the old London banks, the city of London banks, and from the, you know, the Dutch banks and the Italian banks. They, they, they want that over and done with. They want that relationship ended. Uh, and they've effectively ended that relationship, eight, you know, four years ago, three, four years ago, when they stopped taking uh, European sovereign debt as uh, as repo collateral to get dollars into the, and to lever up within the European banking system. And uh, that's what caused the repo crisis of, of 2019. And I believe that that's what, you know, at this point, I almost believe that COVID was an operation to force the Fed to monetize six and a half trillion dollars. Because it's the only thing that makes any sense strategically. Yeah. I mean, when you sit down to really do the, the high level 40,000 foot strategy of how these people operate, like how else are you going to get the Federal Reserve back on the on the band, uh, uh, keep the Federal Reserve from coming off the bandwagon? But then because they had, because they had already started the process of, of delinking the American uh, um, the American debt markets and the American banking system from the rest of the world, but, with but the Tom, implementation of you, silver. But you you're putting, uh, let's say, the West against, shall we, as you say, the what this the East or the the Russian bloc or whatever you want you want to call the it. The global right? South, I think, is really the best the, way to put it. The global South, right? Mm -hmm. Is that perhaps a fake binary? It's In possible. Sense... It's possible. Sure, I'm willing to. I'm willing to to to. In other, words, in other words, idea. if you've got central banks, for example, above them, yeah, but that's not the thing. I, 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 I don't, I don't buy that. I don't buy that argument for a variety of reasons. So I've always known. I mean, going back, this is maybe my bias, mm -hmm. whatever. But I, I remember sitting in my in my lab in two thousand six, two thousand seven, you know, working on novel nickel boron technology that I was working on at the time. Going, this is going to boil down to our central banks versus your central banks fight. Mm -hmm. And the question is, you know, for who's, you know, whose central bank is who's shitty currency regime reigns supreme, right? Um, but that was a very um, kind of adolescent or unnuanced, unsophisticated approach to it. What you have is, it, it really does boil down to that, right? Which central bank is going to win? Is it going to be the ECB and the IMF, or is it going to is it going to be the ECB and then who then turns, takes takes the IMF over? Which really, the WF, WEF already has taken over the IMF. When they got rid of when they nuts and sluts out Dominique Strauss-Kahn back in 2011 and put in Christine Lagarde, that was Klaus Schwab's big move, okay, to take the IMF away from the United States. But he had cover because he had Bernanke in as the Fed chair and then Yellen after him. And they were, you know, full-on globalists. 
Jerome Powell is not a full-on globalist. He's private equity Powell. Okay, he's not the same guy. And I think that while everybody was okay with all of that being one big, you know, everybody being one big happy, you know, uh, rent-seeking cartel back in, you know, back in 2016, 2015. I don't see it being the same thing today. I also see that there was, before Brexit and Trump, there was no hope within the American system to actually get us out from underneath these people. That they had their hooks so deeply embedded in every aspect of the bureaucracy, Congress, and everything else, and control of everything, that any sovereignist-minded people within the American oligarchy, for lack of a better term, didn't see the opportunity for them to declare independence. But they always had the power, but they didn't have the regulatory power to make it stick because they always knew that if the Fed tried to declare independence because of the Euro dollar system, because of LIBOR, and because of Congress working for globalists, that there was no way for them to find their way out of it. But once Trump was elected, we were able to get a Fed chair in and, and believe it or not, I think a Treasury Secretary who began the process of understanding how to extricate the United States from this global system and reassert its primacy. Oh, we're, gonna, we, we're the, the country with the reserve currency? Okay. Well, we're going to show you what that actually means. But there still has to be mechanisms and, and infrastructure and foundations laid for, the, for that mm. uh, to stick. To, to, for that gambit to work. Like you don't just make a big strategic move like that by just going, oh, well, we're going to do this now. Like six months ago, everybody was was um, convinced that the Fed would be able to raise half a point to a point and then they would have to run scurrying back into their into their, their hole like Puxatani Phil. See their shadow, six more weeks of QE, right? And we're here at two and a quarter percent and the market just got, you know, a jobs number that says, oh, my God, the Fed's going to go 75 basis points in September. And they were all talking about the Fed pivoting last week. Like, we're going to be at 4.5% by the end of the year. I'm telling you, we're going to be at 4.5% by the end of the year. And even I didn't see us at that point. You know, I was hoping that Powell would get the 2% by the end of the year in January. Now I'm like, if he's anything less than 4%, I got to rethink my thesis. Um. I think he's got at least two more 75 basis point moves in him. And, you know, the numbers are giving him the cover for that. But he's not raising interest rates to tame inflation. He's raising interest rates to break the backs of the people who are trying to destroy the Federal Reserve and the people that they represent. The Federal Reserve does not represent itself. It represents the New York commercial banks. The New York commercial banks, whom are the shareholders of the, New, of the, uh, of the Federal Reserve, if those banks are under existential threat from Klaus Schwab, from, uh, who I can now call Klaus von Kami-Schnitzel, um, <laughs> then, I mean, that's it. That's what we're dealing with. And it makes perfect sense to me that they're going to they're gonna fight back. And they're going to say no to this. And and all they got to do is raise interest rates and watch the, the ECB flounder, the, you know, Intesa San Paolo and Santander and ING and Deutsche Bank and all the rest of them go, oh, where am I going to get my dollars? And we're like, oh, I'm going to buy them from everybody else. Mm. Well, we'll sell them to you at five percent. Well, we can't afford five percent. Well, then starve, and the Russians are over on the other side and go freeze. Got gold or rubles? Like we're done with you people complaining. Like I was thinking yeah. about this yesterday, right? Think about this. 
The Russians were selling the Germans gas so cheaply. The Germans are, are literally screaming and everybody's jumping, lighting their hair on fire and jumping out of buildings over German energy costs to heat their homes. Do you know how much it's going to cost them now? 3,400 euros a year for their heating bills. Got news for you. Back in the 70s, they used to pay 1,000 or 1,100, right? This report came out yesterday. My parents in New York in the 70s paid more money for heating oil for four months out of the year or five months out of the year then than the Germans pay in 2022. So to give you an idea, I live in the middle of a three-acre field in North Florida and a house I built myself with window rattlers for most of my air conditioning. So me, most of my house, only about two-thirds of my house is actually under AC on a daily basis. Like there's parts of my house that are actually not air conditioned, Right. My, my energy bill, my electricity bill last year in the summertime ran between $250 and $280 a month, depending on how much rain there was and how much how, what the temperature was. But generally, it's like 98 degrees and 95% humidity. Like the, and the window rattlers can't keep up. And I've got one mini split. Okay? Just to give me an idea, $250. This year, it's running about $300, $305. So the Germans now have to pay the amount of money to heat their homes in, during the German winter that a Floridian has to air condition his home in the summer. Yeah, fuck Germany. Like, pay the price, dude. That's what we've been, we've been paying. We've been paying this shit for, we've been paying this stuff for years. Like, I'm sorry, I, I can't have any sympathy for you people. If you've literally been getting subsidized that much by the Russians to sell you gas that cheap, and you're now, and you're angry with these people over invading Ukraine? Yeah, I, I just I, I can't have any sympathy for you. Like, no, well, like, sorry. That's a great segue into the second word of your trio, guns. Mm -hmm. No, I beg your pardon. I beg your pardon. Goat. Guns is the third one. Had goats. Right. Ah, man. Okay, let's. Oh, well, we can go. We can go to guns. It's fine. Yeah, let's go to guns and come back to goats. Sure, sure. Because goats are far more fun than guns. Well. <laughs> uh, 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 I got to really amend that statement now that I think about it. Ooh, that... <laughs> well, they, they... no, I don't really well, like my, my goats that much. No, I like my guns. I really do. Um... Well, I mean, if you if you were Australian, then we would talk about sheep, but you know, yeah, or you know, why are there cliffs in Scotland? Because the sheep push back. Okay, so um... it's an old joke, and I don't mind making it. Um, so, guns, like. Why are we on the verge of World War III? I yes. guess is probably what you're asking. Yeah. Yes. Well, it's because um, some very old colonial powers want their colonies back and don't want to give up their colonies. And they want, they've always, like British foreign policy has always been destroy everybody else. And if you can't destroy everybody else, if you can't take all of their stuff, then leave them in a weakened position where they're fighting with their neighbor and then walk out the door. Like the, the British never leave like nicely. They always leave in such a way that they leave a poison pill behind and, you know, and sectarian violence because, you know, they're British. I think I, I, I finally I heard this yesterday and I, I can't help it. I got to put it in public. It's just the funniest thing. I know it's probably an old joke, but like the why does the, the sun not ever set on the British Empire? Because because God knew that you couldn't let those people like run around in the dark because they'll <laughs> <laughs> like. <laughs> 
like yeah it's it's true like you know when you really stop to look at it like the british are 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 90 percent of the problem we get rid of the i mean when when the russians were like threatening to nuke england and like wipe it out with a with a, with a tidal wave i was like no that would be bad <laughs> <laughs> yeah that would be bad you know I don't mean the British people. Obviously, the British people, they're like the like American people and like German, like the average Germans. They just want to go with their lives, have children, you know. We do, just want to get rid thing. of the Pikes. We just want to get rid of the Pikes and those from Liverpool. No, we just want to get rid of the elites who want to <laughs> kill them, who want to, who want to run everything and steal our money. It's those people that are the problem. It's the it's the British deep state. It's the bankers on the on freaking. You know, it's it's Ten Downing Street, it's City of London, it's the it's the think tanks on K Street in Washington, like it's those guys. That are the it's problems. Boris Johnson. So once, it's Boris Johnson, of course it is, and his dad, who's even worse. Like yeah. I mean, all these people are. He's a eugenicist. Just, oh, yeah, absolutely, he is. Mm. So is Bill Gates. So are the rest of them. Gates was chosen. Microsoft was chosen through all of its government contracts to win the war, to win the OS wars in the 80s and 90s, because they wanted, because they knew they had, they knew Bill Gates's, they had a psychological profile on Bill Gates that he could make a perfect, perfect implementer of, you know, eugenics and destroying, you know, millions of people's lives, hundreds of millions of people's lives. He'll, he'll do it happily because that's who he is. And worse, American, dumb Americans were like, yeah, he's a good libertarian. Like, Okay, so unbelievable, but um, you know, these are the people that need to go away. And so, I well, I don't really, um, I don't, I really don't. I hope the Russians do not nuke the United Kingdom. Like, you know, that that would be bad, um, and I don't think they will. But I know that they were just, they were just giving the same kind of rhetoric that the British were giving. Like the Brits, the Brits were literally saying on a daily basis, "Oh, we're gonna, we're gonna assassinate Putin." Yeah, Putin's only got three months to live. He's got liver cancer. He's got this cancer. He's got that cancer. Like every other day, they were doing this for like for like three months. That was all MI6 saying, we're going to kill him. We're going to kill him. We're going to kill him. The next time he pops his head out, we're going to kill him. And the, the Russians were like, okay, that's fine. You killed Putin, and we're just going to wipe you off the face of the planet. And that threat was probably real. Because, well, you know, no you don't get to do regime change no. in Russia. That's We're done. It's, it's like that's it. You couldn't even pull it off in pa and, and in Kazakhstan in, in in January. What's wrong with you people? Like, why do you actually think you have any agency left? Like, MI six. Everything's not a Bond movie. You people actually aren't in charge of anything. You're just <laughs> running around making things worse. Okay, so why don't you just all retire and collect your freaking doll and you know have your little power fantasies while wearing BR goggles? Like, go play yes. go play Star Wars: The Old Republic. It's like the best. The the Imperial Age is like the best James Bond script you've ever you've ever seen. Like just keep doing that one over and over and over again. It's great. Yeah, Brandon, it's not Brandon, even hard. Brandon doesn't like Putin either. Oh, I uh, mean, uh, Biden. Yes. <laughs> oh, Biden doesn't like anything other than Jello, and whoever changes his depends. For Christ's sake, that guy's got you know have COVID consistently now between now and the midterms because they know they can't put him out in public. Like, let's not even, let's not even get, you know, as, as Doug McGregor put it the other day, the day after he was selected as president, I called him, started calling him fungal Joe, but I kept forgetting about the, about the, the you know, about why he's a mushroom because you, because they keep him in the dark and they feed him bullshit. Like, right. So that was Doug McGregor used that line on Judge Knapp a couple of weeks ago. I was like, wow, that was.
was I forgot all about that one. And I was like all the way there. I've been calling him the first fungal president since, you know, January 21st. So, um, yeah, no, Biden is 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 uh, is is a placeholder for Obama and for Kyle Schwab. That's what he is. Um, and Obama runs the, the White House. There's no doubt. And, um, you know, the midterms are going to be very interesting to see what happens uh, as we go forward here. Um, I, I don't have a good answer for it. I, I kept thinking that they were going to try and you know like do the same thing they did in Italy where they put in Mario Draghi. So, hey, why don't we put in Janet Yellen? Like we get rid of Kamala Harris, we get rid of Biden. You know, we spear Agnew out Kamala Harris somehow. You notice how she refuses to to show her face in public and do any public uh, attendance anymore. Yeah, she's doing that on purpose. She's not dumb. She knows that Biden's like gone in three months, like like two days after the midterms, and they get swamped. He's going to like go away, and then we're going to have President Harris. The interesting part about that is that if we wind up with President Harris, she's not. I don't think she's on board with any of this. I think she's on, you know, planet Kamala. She's on team Kamala. She's not on team Davos. She's not on team Democrat. She's not on team Hillary. She's on team. She's, she's on team Harris. So I can see a coup d'etat. Once Biden's gone. Like she starts like using the power of the presidency. And I'll bet, and you know, we make fun of her because she can't speak in public because she's, you know, but don't, don't, don't think for a second that she's dumb. Like, you know what I mean? Like that she's not conniving. She's made herself, she got herself to be vice president for Christ's sake. Uh, and, you know, she has apparently like one skill. <laughs> which is, which is what? Sucking off Willie Brown. That's what, <laughs> like, come on, right? <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, I, I was kind of leaving it out there, but if you want me to go there, I'll go there. Like, um, so, yeah, I, I can see Harris, like, firing all the Obamaites, firing Samantha Power, firing Susan Rice, firing Valerie Jarrett, going night of the long knives on them. Could you imagine that? No one's, no one's bracketing for this. I, even I didn't bracket for this until about two days ago when I saw Biden had COVID for the third time in two weeks. I'm like, Okay, now what? And then I noticed Harris was nowhere to be found. And Yellen, like, and they left Yellen out there to, to try and stage manage all this stuff. And she's getting, like, lambasted. She, they're leaving her out to hang, too. I'm like, oh, if they're leaving Yellen out to hang, we have no idea what this is going to look like coming in, in the fall. So, Well, since um, you're on the topic of guns, though, you yourself have got yeah, guns. I do. I've owned guns for most of my adult life. Are you um, a hunter as well? No, I am not. Um, I'm, I'm not a good, I know. I, I don't have the patience for that. I can barely <laughs> keep my head still on this podcast. Are you kidding? Um, <laughs> can you imagine? No, I mean, dude, I, I like my wife has to slap my hands to keep me from working on new sticking patterns on my legs. Like I've been like, I, I, I do this all the time. I'm, I'm, I, I pay, you know, I allow my friend Brad to hunt my property for deer and then he likes to shoot deer but he doesn't like eating deer and i like to eat deer and not necessarily shoot the deer so it's a lovely symbiotic relationship <laughs> and he gets okay. to teach his sons how to hunt and all of that stuff but i mean i have hunting rifles i even have rifles i bought for like the purposes of like, hunt deer or whatever i'm like yeah i've got 
you know, plenty of them. And, you know, I'd hand them to my wife to go because she's the one who would have the patience to sit on the roof. And I mean, I where I live, like you can you literally I could sit on my roof with a with a lawn chair and, you know, and a beer and just, you know, just wait for them to show up at, at, at dusk and just pick them off. Because like I live in Deer Central in well, North Florida. It's great. This is it's not it's not an easy segue, but I'll take it. From right, deer from from deer to goats. <laughs> sure. Well, they're 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 not too they're not too far off from each other, to be honest with you. They're, but um, my my goats are um, I, I so I have a, a handful of goats, and actually I have too many goats at this point because I've had a couple of kittings and I haven't gotten rid of haven't gotten rid of them. Actually, there's no market really right now. I mean, if you want to talk about um, the effects of the supply chain breakdown and whatnot, the um, there's you know, I've been actually quite shocked that I haven't been able to find, you know, people who are looking for small starter herds and whatnot that, you know, doing the the new homesteading thing and want to get into it. Because every third person that I, you know, I interact with anymore is like, yeah, I'm really thinking about getting five acres and some goats and doing the thing. I'm like, okay. Harder than it looks, by the way, and you want to talk to somebody like me who's like all the specific knowledge and the 12 years of doing it right and wrong um, to get you up to speed. And I'm not, you know, and you know, buy high quality stock, blah, 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 blah. But um, we haven't been able to sell anything. I mean, you know, usually we used to, you know, put kids up on Craigslist and, you know, at least get like calls and bad, you know, oh, yeah, I'll give you 50 bucks for him. Like you got him up for 100 a quarter. Yeah, I'll give you 50 bucks for him. Like, yeah, I'll eat him for that price. What sort of goods? Yeah. Um, mostly my mine are a mix of feigning goats, which are great meat goats. And uh, the mitonics are, are the short, cobby, heavy, double muscle. They make great meat goats, but they're also heavily, they've been heavily tuned for the North American parasite load. Right, right. So they're very, very hardy. They're almost impossible to kill. So they're great goats for, for novice goat owners who don't know how, what they're doing. How many do you have? Uh, well, right now I have about, well, I had Grace, I gave birth uh, Wednesday, and she gave us two, and we weren't expecting it because that's what happens when you let the buck out and then take the kids, kids away from the, I think honestly, Finn got a, a shot in on Grazel like two days after we pulled her <laughs> kids off of her for Christ's sake. And you know, five months later, we've got two more, two more little bucklings that we don't need. Um, cute as hell, but you know, uh, and they will be for about three or four weeks and then they'll be annoying and then they'll be expensive. Um, and I have a mix of those, and I have some mini Nubians, which are basically meat, uh, which are uh, Nubians, which are crossed with Nigerian dwarfs. They are dairy goats. So you cross a meat goat with a dairy goat, and you get a, a you get a heb, you get a hardier dairy goat mm. that whose that whose boys make good meat goats. They don't give as much milk, but the milk is richer, and they're hardier, meaning they're willing to put some energy into their own into their own body. We've so yeah. thoroughly optimized um, dairy goats for milk production that. If they get I, even remotely sick, they just want to die. I'm not a fan of goat's milk. It's too sharp for me, the taste. Well, it depends on how you feed them. You know, I found that when I'm feeding the girls for, um, for production, um, I did a mix of barley, uh, goat standard, like 16% goat feed, and um, uh, black oil sunflower seeds. And then I fed them... Um, um, perennial peanut which is a, a variation on uh it's not peanut but it's something we have down here in the southeastern united states it's called perennial peanut it's a, it's another ground cover crop like alfalfa high protein really good they like it actually better the goats actually like it better than than alfalfa and uh you give them that and what you wind up with is a very sweet 
high fat milk. And one of the problems with goat's milk, especially commercially produced, is that, you know, in these high production animals, they're only giving you three and a half percent butter fat. And the, the, the uric acid chemist, the uric acid that, you know, is catalyzed, that, that catalyzes the goatiness, the sharp flavor in, 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 goat's, in goat's milk, which accumulates over time, grows faster in low uh, in a low fat environment. So if you cross heavy if you cross, cross meat goats, which will give you like a quart of half and half every day with a, you know, like a, like a, like a Nubian, which is a kind of a, a sort of a heavier stock uh, dairy goat, right? Which they usually give about four and a half to 5%. You cross them together, you wind up with a, with a, with a half breed that gives you 7% butter fat. Like this, this milk is sweet and rich and beautiful. And if you've never had 7% butter fat milk, then you have, you, by the way, you ain't lived in this life. And, um, but it all depends on what you feed them and whether or not the bucks are anywhere near them because the bucks, the stinkiness from the bucks gets onto the girls. There's, if you do it right, you can, it's, it's, it's perfectly, it's perfectly good. Um, but all, but everybody also has incredibly different yeah. sensitivities to the, to the, to the flavor. Me, I don't taste any, I don't taste it. Other people are like, Oh my God, I can taste every, every bit of it. Mm. So everybody's a little different. Um, uh, but, but the word goat is also a great metaphor for self-reliance. Absolutely, it is. Um, they they are little. They're I, I like to call them all terrain vehicles with an attitude problem. Like they can literally go anywhere. They they do what they really they do what they want. But you know, um, but they're very happy to have somebody else take care of them. And we've been around them. You know, like I said earlier, we domesticated goats. What? Oh, I, was, I might have been talking about somebody. I think this actually came up in my other uh, talk earlier in the day. We domesticated goats, what, about 20 grand, 20,000 years ago, 15,000 years ago? Like, it's dogs and goats are the first two animals that we domesticated, right, for production purposes, because goats work beautifully with nomadic tribes. Um, you can take them anywhere, because they can live off of marginal land. So you can go to where there isn't a lot, as long as there's water, then, you know, you can, you can live. Like, that's how you live out in the Mongolian steppes. That's how they live in lots of, you know, marginal places around the world, especially in Asia. Um, you can take a herd of goats with you and you can live pretty well. Right. Um, and because of that, they are, uh, they're just, you know, they're useful in every way, you know, meat, milk, and fiber right? and, and leather. Right. I mean, there's everything you could ever, you could ask for off of an animal. Uh, and they, you go with, and they go where you go or you go where they go because they'll find the food. All you have to do is, you know, go with them. So um, they really are that kind of, uh, they, they, from that perspective. And they're human-sized. Like, my little myotonic goats are like 100 pounds. Like, the bucks are 100 pounds. And, you know, if you need to, like, worm them or you need to, you know, catch them so that you can take, so you can round them up and, you know, put them on the trailer and take them to, take them to be slaughtered. Like, all you got to do is walk up to them, wah, and then they fall over and you pick them up and, you, you know, you do the thing. Like, seriously, like, this has been a, a you know, if I got a, you know, I got a, I got a, a doe that's sick, you know, and she's blowing poop out her back, backside and she's sick and she needs to be wormed or she's got coccidia or she's got enterotoxemia, she's going to die. Like, you got to, like, you need to be able to catch this animal. I got news for you. You know, go out there and try and catch a 1,500-pound cow. Like, how do you work with an animal like that? I don't have any idea. Goats really are very human scaled. And I've, you know, I, and I've never really had very big bucks. And one of the things I always recommend to people is to get, 
you know, get a small buck and large girls. Like get Nubian girls, fine, but cross them with a smaller buck. One, the girls will then have smaller babies, so you'll have fewer hitting problems. And then two, you'll have small bucks to deal with. You won't have two of these 200-pound monstrosities. Because you get an ornery 200-pound goat, forget it, dude. Like you're, you're, you're asking for it. You better bottle raise him so that he like is like a big horn dog. Otherwise, like you, you're you, you've got work to do. I mean, you you got to go in there and like, that guy can one inch punch you far more than Bruce Lee ever could and take and send you to the hospital. You're 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 working with you know livestock is working stock is not easy. So, um, but you if you do it right, if you design it right, yeah, then it is, and then it's you know. And you treat them well and, you know, they, they trust you. And, you know, I've always had bucks that are just like big dogs, you know, because, you know, half the time, the ones I keep, I bottle raise, right? This means you pull them off the moms and you put them on a bottle and then you handle them all the time. And then they act like you're there, you imprint on them, like they're, you're their mom, right? And then they treat you really well. And then, you know, they come up to you and they nicker at you and, they think you're part of their family and, you know, they come up to be petted and all that stuff, even though they may, st- and then, you know, they, and then the box six, three months out of the year, they stink like you wouldn't believe them or crusty and nasty. And they want to be petted. I'm like, away from me, dude, you're nasty. Like, you know, when they're in rut. Right. So it is what so it is. So when you combine guns, sorry, gold guns and goats, you end up with mm-hmm. this really great symbiosis that pretty is, uh, pretty much is anti-state and decentralization. Yeah. I agree. That's kind of the the idea, right? Um, that and then it gives you the opportunity when you think about it to think about how you can, you know, how you can be. It, it's not just it, it's not just decentralization. It really is this. It's a mindset of I, I don't want to be my own. I don't have to be my own everything, right? The, the, the you know the division of labor. Another word for the division of labor is civilization, right? You're better at something than I am. You use your time more effectively than I do to do the thing you do. That's why we we find our niche within the division of labor. And that's how society and civilization can grow. Otherwise, we're all just living at subsistence levels. Right. And I don't, you know, so I don't advocate everybody do what I did and then found out that wow, that takes way too much work and I don't necessarily want to do that. So I have a small herd of goats that I for the most part keep around in case everything falls apart, in case World War Three starts tomorrow. I still want to have milk. I still want to have some meat stored on the hoof, even if it's costing me money to store that meat on the hoof because I can't sell the excess animal. All right. Well, then I got to take a Saturday and you know slaughter a couple of them and you know put them in my freezer, right? So, um, but uh, you know, I'm in a position where I can do that now. It's not you know I'm not I'm not starving, so. I can do that and I can make that as part of my insurance policy. You know, we all have insurance that we pay for in a certain way, right? You know, so do you pay for, you know, how do you, you know, what do you, what do you do to pay for insurance on a, on a daily basis? Well, I, I feed, you know, goats and ducks. I feed ducks low quality dog food and the goats high quality goat food. It's just that simple. And then I have a few acres of pasture for them and, you know, and we get through it and I have to you know, give them some hay. And that's why I have too many coats because I don't have enough pasture. So I still have to feed them hay in the summertime, which makes, which just makes no economic sense whatsoever. Right. But it is what it is. I mean, but it's the mindset. Like, what do you, where can you be your own within your life? Your own, whatever it is, central bank, 
you know, uh, uh, food producer, whatever it is, the, whatever you can do. And then whatever you're going to do in such a way that you, by doing that, you will also strengthen your local community. Because the, the local community thing is a really important aspect of this. Because at the end of the day, meat doesn't come from the supermarket, right? Cereal doesn't come from the supermarket. Milk doesn't come from the supermarket. That's where it aggregates. Where it comes from is places like my house. Where it comes from is places like my friend Brad, who also runs cows. And I buy a cow off of them every year and I stick it in my freezer, right? Um, you know, that's where that stuff comes from. And making sure that if we're going to be in a, in a situation where things are, you know, kind of dicey, and we're absolutely moving into a period where everything is with the supply of all basic good stuff, you know, foodstuffs and, and just, you know, goods and services, it's going to be dicey. Well, then maybe you should really think about making sure that your local supply chain is robust. And if you have money and expertise in logistics or this or that or whatever it is um, to help make that better, then maybe that's where you should be putting your extra time as opposed to thinking about, should I put in a victory guard? No, maybe you should, you know, strengthen the local, the guy over there who has five acres and he's growing, you know, 10 acres and he's growing beets on that 10 acres. Maybe you should help him with a strategic investment in and then take a small yield off of it. You know what I mean? Make, make him into your partner. And you might find you'll make more, you know, you'll find everything will work much better for you in the end. So you're talking about community. Absolutely. Absolutely. I've always, I've, I, when you go far enough down the quote unquote libertarian rabbit hole, the individualist rabbit hole, you realize very quickly that what you're, what you're arguing for is that they, is that the most uh, sustainable form of human organization is a voluntary community of people of basically like-mindedness who are willing to defend that land and that community themselves. And that by decentralizing um, the economy and decentralizing the, um, uh, the power as much as possible so that people don't have power to point guns at each other, um, then uh, we don't need to invest as much in defense. We don't need to invest as much in that worry. That the Tolkien model of the Shire is uh, actually the right one. And yes, the hobbits eventually had to go out and fight in a world that you know went crazy. Sure, that's that, that's there's no no argument that that may be necessary. Um, but that should be the the life we aspire to, not the life that we think is unattainable. Are you saying, Tom, that you want to be short and have big hairy feet? I already, I, I'm, I'm not tall. I am. I'm five eleven. Um, but I, and I do have hairy feet. So you know, uh, I actually, I, I actually, Jerm, to be honest with you, um, getting me to put on shoes on a daily because I live work from home, dude. Like, and I, you know, like I run, a, I run a small, I run a small hobby farm. Like a lot of poop, a lot of death, right? Well, I got news for you. I go out in the morning to feed because my wife is, you know, hasn't has. My wife is dealing with some internal uh, family medical stuff right now. And so I'm having to do that stuff in the morning, which I don't normally do. But when I have to go out and feed in the morning, you think I put shoes on even to walk through all the goat poop? No, I just walk, I just go outside. I got big hobbit feet, for Christ's sake. You know, I've got you know, big horny rinds on the bottom of my feet and I walk around and I have to put shoes on. It actually hurts. Like I, I wear sandals and barefoot. And then in the wintertime, I just put socks on. And I'm one of those guys that walks around with socks and sandals on because I don't feel like putting my feet in shoes because that hurts. 
because they're not used to being in shoes. Like, and then I have to, you know, like I travel and I got to be in my feet, got to be in shoes for more than four hours. It hurt. It's just not cool because my feet are not used to being in shoes. It's hilarious. I literally walk around all day and, you know, almost every day I walk around completely barefoot. And I'm like, I look at the bottom of my feet at the end of the day. I'm like, you're not going to bed with those. You go, go wash your feet. Yes, my wife's the same. I'm I'm not allowed to get into the bed unless I've uh, washed my feet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's it, that's I agree. I, I, it's a it's a good rule actually. You know, <laughs> it's just it's like the secret to a good marriage, uh, to a wash successful marriage. Yeah, wash your feet <laughs> before you go to bed. Wash your feet. You know, Tom, don't um, fart in the bed. Don't fart in the bed and yes. hold her and hold and 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 you know pull the covers over your head. That one. Pull my and finger. Then two. Wash your feet. Yeah. Uh, pull <laughs> my, pull finger. my finger. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay, a question I ask all my guests as sure. we come in for the as we come in for the landing. <clears throat> all right. In front of you, there's a crystal ball. What do you see? Um, nothing. I see a mess. I see. I see clouds. I mean, I've got the. I may have one of the best crystal balls in the industry, and I'm telling you, I don't know what's going on. In the long run. If you're talking about, okay, actually better than this, do me a favor, a little bit more, a little bit more context. Are we talking 18 months? Well, 18 years. What are we talking about? Well, the great Give me a time frame and I'll tell you what it looks like. Well, the great part about that question is I'm leaving it up to you to interpret. Okay. Okay. So if you're looking into, into the future, probably by the end of the decade, best way to look at it, the world will the the political map will not look anything like it currently does. Uh, odds on bet, the United States will not break apart into multiple jurisdictions. Um, but it will be permanently damaged as a political institution and as a as a fifty state compact. It will be trying to rebuild itself, but it also will be a different. Uh, it will not be by the end of the decade, we will not be the world's reserve currency. And that will change the way everything looks. We're going to be in a, in a, in a world where the Russians own most of you, what is now currently Ukraine, where Eastern Europe is no longer a member of the former Warsaw Pact countries are not part of the European union, where the Euro, if it exists at all, will be a Northern currency block and everybody else will have left. Um, we will still be running the world on oil and natural gas there'll just be more nuclear power plants running around of higher quality and uh, technology than the old gen ones from Westinghouse. And, um, the world will be moving its capital center away from the West. That's the big one. And I don't see any, and, uh, and I think the one that bake your, that may bake your noodle is that, the Chinese system is no more sustainable than the American system. Okay. So when I listen to, you know, admittedly excellent analysts like Pepe Escobar and, and others, but who's, who have such a pro-China anti-American bent, or at the very least anti-American bent that then winds up being effectively pro-Chinese because they're effectively leftists in their thinking. They're essentially Marxists in their thinking, so they're okay with this which is complete nonsense. It betrays their blind spot. The American system is not sustainable in its current form. 
neither is the Chinese system. So what happens if the Chinese, the current Chinese system falters in such a way that it fails upward towards um, treating capital better than it currently does, while the United States treads water and Europe sinks into effectively third world status. That may be the catalyst for what actually sends capital screaming into China after the, after this period of turmoil. There's, there's war on the horizon. There's no doubt about that. The bigger question is um, what the world looks like after that war is over. And what does that catalyze the kind of change that no one is even beginning to contemplate at this point? Because Martin Armstrong keeps telling everybody that by 2032, China, the, the, China will be the global, capital, the global center of capital in the world. But China is not going to be the global center of capital in the world with its current system. It can't. So does China go, you know, full or reasonable, reasonably free market? Does the CCP collapse and we get a different China? It's a good question. I don't know. I'm just, I'm just, I'm it, honestly, when I look into that crystal ball, I can see any number of things. I see the, I see the, I can see all of those possibilities at the same time. I, I actually deal more in eigenstates than I do with crystal balls. So, yeah, but that's always a great thought experiment. Sure, that's, of course. That's the, that's the point. Um, of course. Tom, okay, if I want to follow your work, where can I go? Easy. Uh, go over to my blog at tomluwango.me or search for me on, you know, your search engine of choice. I don't recommend anybody use Google. Yes. Um, don't give them the money. Um, but you can find me on you know, search for me or gold goats and guns. You'll find me. But the blog over tomluwango.me from there, you can find links to the Patreon if you want to become a member over there uh, where I do. Um, I publish both the newsletter and twice weekly private podcasts, which are a mix of news and market analysis. So hardcore technical analysis of strategic markets, as well as private blog posts uh, for my patrons about twice a week um, and twice a week on the, the market reports, twice a week on the two to three times a week on the private blog posts. And then obviously the monthly newsletter, which has the portfolio and the picks and everything else. Uh, and then, of course, this podcast. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter. It's TFL1728. What search engine do you use? Um, generally DuckDuckGo, but I just find they all suck. Like at this well, point, Duck, Duck, I don't even... also given up the ghost. I know They've... it's basically it's basically Google, mm. I, and they and they you know and the Brave one isn't very good. Like Bing is pretty terrible. Like mm. you know, I mean, they're all bad. Like at this point, if you don't know what you're looking for, I mean, mm. if you got a good recommendation for a good search engine that actually gives you results, it'd be, I'm, I'm I'm all ears, but at this point, they've, they've all been taken over to the point where they're, they're, I went looking for a very specific thing yesterday, like very specific thing. And I can't quite remember what it is now. And I typed in all the words and only the words that mattered. And I still, oh, it was the routing number for my credit union. I typed in my credit union, the name of my credit union and the routing number, just to make sure that I had the, the routing number right when I went to you know, pay a bill, right? That was that the actual routing number for my credit union was on the bottom of page two. It should have been the first fucking link. I mean, literally, boom, 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 routing number. 
advertisements for these other credit unions, these other banks, da, 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 credit unions are in trouble, mm. you know, all this, you know, Washington Post stories, and then bottom of page two. Oh, it's that one. Thank you. Unbelievable. Because they really don't want us to have any information. In the information. <laughs> Tom Luongo, <laughs> thank you for joining me in the trenches. <laughs> thank you, Germ. I appreciate it. You have a great day. My name is Germ. This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.